0: I'm Gina Asher. Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is award-winning journalist and author Andrew Lamb, one of the founders of New America Media, an author of two books and of columns and articles published in dozens of newspapers and magazines. He has been a commentator on NPR's All Things Considered, and he was featured in the documentary My Journey Home, which aired on PBS in 2004. Welcome, Andrew Lamb. Thank you. Your immigrant experience informs your work, your books of essays and memoir, as well as your journalistic writing. To such a degree, I think we must start there. Mm-hmm. You were 11 when you and your family fled Vietnam in 1975, and this is a time many Americans remember from watching newsreels on TV of the helicopters evacuating people as the country fell to the Viet Cong. What was that like for an 11-year-old boy in a C-130 cargo plane Mm -hmm. of refugees? What did you think would happen, and what did happen?
1: You know, I have to go back a few days before that because... uh, you know, refugees are people often who don't plan to leave but have to, uh, unlike immigrants who pack their bags and sell their houses, say goodbye to their neighbors. For me, I was in the middle of uh, sixth grade uh, final exams, and uh, I was still studying for my final exams, and my mom said, put all the things you want to put in a bag, and we're going to leave. And I say, where? And she didn't tell me. So I didn't even know we were leaving the country for the last time. And so, you know, I put in my stamp collections and I grabbed whatever I thought was precious to me at that point. And then next thing you know, I am on an airplane out of Vietnam. And for the first time in my own life, I never left Vietnam before. So it was very strange and very um, uh, disorienting because, you know, I, I could see the land receding and I could see the ocean and keeps going and going and going and didn't know where we we're going. And people were crying on the plane. People were throwing up, but some people never left on a cargo plane before. Um, and um, so it was an overwhelming feeling for an 11-year-old. And I think my natural instinct was to shut down, like not to feel anything. So I, if it felt like I was a robot. You know, mm-hmm. I was watching everything but not feeling anything.
0: Do you still have that bag and that stamp collection?
1: You know, the bag is gone, but the stamp collection is still around. In fact, the stamp collection was borrowed for a um, Vietnam War exhibit in Oakland, uh, California some years ago uh, on the 25th anniversary of the uh, end of the Vietnam War. And they did this whole exhibition of the diaspora Vietnamese. And um, they had borrowed a a T-shirt of mine that I wore as an 11-year-old on which there's an image of the word train, uh, and it's it's a train. And then um, my STEM collection, because they wanted to show... Um, visitors what it's like for a kid to flee Vietnam and and I remember going through the whole exhibit with um, people and then they didn't know that stuff was mine so I say what what do you what was the most moving experience for you and the guy my one of my friends say the t-shirt with the word train and the stamp collection and I say did you know that they're mine he say, no
0: and so much of your work is reflective like that. Yeah. I'm not surprised that you have those items. Your path to writing, though, was not direct. Nope. Uh, you talk about your your family's aspirations. Once they got on their feet in California, mm-hmm. uh, their goal was to achieve this middle-class life, and the route to get there was hard work and education. You received a degree in biochemistry mm-hmm. and worked with cancer researchers after yeah. college. What happened to change the course of all that?
1: Yeah, what happened is uh, really uh, heartbreak. I was involved in a relationship, um, and it was a very profound relationship for me because I was a sort of a studious kid until I got into Berkeley and then fell in love. <laughs> and when, uh, like a lot of kids who got into college and fell in love, uh, you think the relationship would last forever. But after uh, I graduated, you know, we all we all had to deal with jobs and career and moving away. And so that relationship uh, couldn't sustain itself. And while studying for the MCAT and working in a cancer research lab, I thought, well, why don't I take UC extension courses in creative writing and just try to address this uh, broken heart of mine. Uh, uh, it was a very uh, sort of modest effort in trying to deal with, you know, very typical experience of college life. But, of course, I, I was not really out of love yet. I was still in love. And so I really couldn't frame the narrative. And, of course, I haven't had any experience writing. I, I kept trying but didn't make any sense. And But there was a passage in it where I wrote about what it's like to having shared a life, a language, an intimate, um, private universe with someone. And when you lose that someone, uh, it it had felt like being in exile. Hmm. And when I came to that passage and rereading it later on, it occurred to me that it was not my first heartbreak, that the first heartbreak was the 11-year-old, the robot, who stood on the beach not reacting but watching his people on their knees weeping and wondering what happened to his father, to his family, his uh, neighbors, to his country. And that kid had shut himself down to become American, uh, completely Americanized, to the point where he pretended to be non-Vietnamese or to be American-born. Um, and even after college, was still hoping to hold on to that narrative until the heartbreak opened doors. And it didn't open door to the narrative of romance, but it opened door to history. And history come rushing back.
0: And you were waiting for it. Uh, Yeah. As a reporter and writer, you've traveled extensively, Mm -hmm. including to Southeast Asia and Vietnam, Mm -hmm. where surely you were inspired to examine just what you were talking about, that heartbreak. Mm -hmm. What did you find when you returned to Vietnam?
1: Well, the first time I went back was quite early in uh, the, the post Cold War world, and in 1991 I, I entered Vietnam against the wishes of my parents, who believed that I would be arrested for being a uh, Vietnamese American, who who didn't think that I should go back because then I would give be a mouthpiece for the communists and so on. But I really wanted to report on what happened to Vietnam. Uh, in the post Cold War era, when the Soviet Union had stopped being the big brother, and Vietnam is sort of left floundering in the uh, you know uh, in the new um, paradigm of um, political shift, but it was really hard for me to do the story because on the one hand, I was this post traumatic traumatized <laughs> kid coming back to his homeland, and. Uh, for years after the war had ended, you know, many of us during the 80s really didn't believe that we were ever going to see our homeland again. For instance, if you have left Cuba or uh, Russia, or China, you don't think of going back ever because you didn't think the Cold War would ever end. So to be able to go back to the land where you uh, you know, had sort of said goodbye to was really a profound experience. Uh, and then I had to struggle to find narrative to tell what had happened to these people in the post-Cold War period. And the, one of the more interesting stories has to do with uh, me going to visit the zoo in Saigon. Um, because as a child, I had wonderful memories, like many kids do, of zoos, you know, seeing birds and tigers and so on. So I went to the zoo because I didn't know what story I wanted to tell, but I just wanted to see out of nostalgia this place of my childhood. And it just happened that I went on the day that an elephant had died, and the uh, Typical experience of in the West when some animal die, you bury it and announce it, but in Vietnam, because of the sheer poverty you know that uh, of a country that was just emerging out of um, the the communist uh, ideological uh bend was that they started selling the elephant meat on the street, and there was these long lines around the mm. block, and I thought, well, here is the story that I wanted to write after all that this is, in a way, metaphorical of that old communist ideology. It's the old elephant that died and it gets dissected. And people who were still living on a ration cards, you know, um, to be able to buy rice and meat and so on, were so happy to see so much meat in one place. And also the, the, the zookeeper, who probably makes like $20 a, a month, uh, was so happy that he could sell this meat to make ends meet, you know. And so it's a very bizarre moment, but I captured it as a narrative of the death of an elephant. And in a way, uh, it was a narrative of, um, you know, the dead of, dead end of communism as well.
0: You chronicle these experiences um, as you define your own experiences, and we see that in your essays. Yeah. After this experience and when you returned again to Vietnam, how did that— help you define yourself. Yeah. Much of your work is about self-evaluation and and having one foot in one world and one in yeah. the other. At each of these visits to Vietnam, did you have sort of a gut check each time?
1: Yeah, I I constantly have this question of uh my uh the relationship between me and Vietnam and it c- constantly shifts over the years. I went to a temple. I actually never told anyone this. I went to a temple to ask for fortune once. And I asked for my uh, the question I asked, was, what is exactly my relationship to this country? <laughs> and the answer was very ambiguous, you know, um, not good, not bad, not clear. And I thought that's how it feels. Um, because when one is exiled and cannot return to a place, um, there is profound yearning. But when the place is accessible and it turns into this not very likable country with full of corruption and hungry people who want to uh, emigrate to the United States and, you know, and they become very westernized and very materialistic, it's no longer a place of yearning. It's an accessible place in which you can go to, but it doesn't feel like your destiny whatsoever. Um, So that it's very strange to look at my relationship of Vietnam in regards to my father's relationships to Vietnam. Here is a man who loves his homeland, who was defeated in the war as a you know, general from the South Vietnamese Army, who lived in exile, but always, you know, the French say the raison d'être, the meaning of his life is always the freedom and democracy for Vietnam. But he would never go back to Vietnam uh, as long as it stays a, a communist regime. And so... Uh, for him, Vietnam is his destiny. It's still his raison d'être, his crucible. For me, Vietnam is a place that I can go to to do reporting. I was there two years ago for the Jim Lehrer News Hour. And uh, I can always go back to do some story. In fact, there's talk to do uh, a, a story with uh, French magazine Geo, you know. But it's no longer a place that holds my imagination. Uh, my memory informs me more than the actual country itself. And that's the thing about things that are accessible it takes away the yearning.
0: You visited I believe you said your your mother or your grandmother's ancestral mm-hmm. homeland has it changed as well?
1: Yeah, my mom uh, is from Hanoi, but there is this village outside of Taibing, which is a, a sort of like a port city of the north. Um, and in that village is where, you know, they can count back probably 16 generations of uh, the To family, that's her last name. And, and it's like uh, they basically still live with this long history of, a family tree, and the moment I mentioned my grandfather's name when I visited, uh, there is this collective memory. There is this sense of continuity of, of the line, of the clanship, and what happened to so-and-so, so-and-so. And so that when you're there, you're you're bound by this sort of uh, 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 kind of collective uh, memory of of your background. And yet, at the same time, I never felt... Uh, an understanding that uh, a mutual understanding because they can't figure out what a journalist is you know uh, when I talk about my writing life or my profession um, they say oh that's good why don't you get married you know or how's your mom so there is this old world value that hadn't really fully shifted at all if uh, ever which is kind of warm and and wonderful but it's no longer um, the kind of story that defines who I am
0: And that's what you spend a lot of your time writing about, I think, is that question. You were featured on the 2004 PBS project called My Journey Home, Mm -hmm. a project that looked at um, diaspora or the dispersal of people from their homelands. Mm -hmm. In the written part of that project, which is still available on the web, you examine the idea of leaving this culture that's steeped in tradition and lore Mm -hmm. and the scattering of your family who went to several continents. And you write that quote: "My identity, likewise, has become multi-layered and is in flux." Mm-hmm. Is it still in flux?
1: Yeah, I I think identity should be in flux. I think that I am uh, at the far end of that continuum in which I am constantly on the move. But even people who are not moving, um, their identity shifts as well. Um, I mean, we're talking about Vietnam, where in the cities now. Um, you know most people access the internet. They identify themselves differently than they did you know, say ten, 20 years ago. And the same way say, in Silicon Valley, where you know I talk about it It's East, East west, where I met a woman who remembered the um the orchards, um, and that was where Silicon Valley is now and and so she says she hadn't moved. Right. And she's came from generations of farmers. She's in her 80s. And and she said, yeah, but the borders moved Mm -hmm. around me. And that's also the world that we all live in now. You know, the globalization forces constantly shift affiliations, choices in culture and religions and, you know, even the language we choose to learn.
0: Your collection of essays, Perfume Dreams, Reflections on the Vietnamese Diaspora, Won the Pen American Beyond the Margins Award in 2006 and was shortlisted for the Asian American Literature Award. Many of the essays look at how East and West have changed or are changing each other. Mm -hmm. Would you read a passage from one of those essays for us?
1: From Perfume Dreams. Yes. Okay. Um, Perfume Dreams starts out with this one essay that basically captures the reason why I wanted to write Perfume Dreams. And it's called Lost Photos. When I was 11 years old, I did an unforgivable thing. I set my family photos on fire. We were living in Saigon at the time, and as Viet Cong tanks rolled toward the edge of the city, my mother, half-crazed with fear, ordered me to get rid of everything incriminating. Obediently, I removed pictures from the album pages, diplomas from their glass frames, film reels from metal canisters, letters from desk drawers. I put them all in a pile in the backyard and lit a match. When I was done, the mementos of three generations had turned into ashes. Only years later in America did I begin to regret the act. A few pictures survived because my older brother, who was a foreign student, had taken them with him. Well, why didn't I save the rest the way I slipped my STEM collection in my backpack hours before we boarded the C-130 cargo plane and headed for Guam? For years, I could not look at friends' family photo albums without feeling remorse. Then last week, I had a dream that was so instructive, it left me with a different estimation of that loss. In the dream, I find myself once more in front of my old home in Saigon. I walk through the rusted iron gate to find, to my horror, the place gutted, an empty structure where once there was life and love. Immediately, I start to rummage among the pile of broken bricks and fallen plasters, finding at last a nightstand that once belonged to my mother. I pull at its drawer and out spill dozens of black and white photos. I am ecstatic, and the photos are intact. They are exactly as I remember them. Here's one of my brother when he was 12, wearing his martial arts uniforms and bowing to the camera. Here's one of my mother as a teenager, posing next to the ruins of Angkor Wat. Here is my father as a young and handsome colonel, smoking a cigar. And me and my sister holding on to our dogs, Medora and Nina, as we wave to the photographer, smiling happily. Suddenly, a little boy appears in the dream. This is my home, he yells, and you're trespassing. But these are my photos, I meekly protest. The boy looks at me with a mixture of suspicion and shrewdness and changes his tone. Well, he says, how much would you give me for these photos? But before I can find the answer, he laughs and snatches the photos out of my hand. I try to grab them back, of course, but it's too late. I walk to find my arm still reaching out over the blanket in the gesture toward the pictures, still trying to retrieve them. Confused, I stared at my own empty hand for what seemed to be a long, long time. In that salty dawn with the cable cars rumbling up and down the hills and their bells clanging merrily outside my window, I saw what I hadn't seen before, that nothing was ever truly lost. What I failed to retrieve in the dream survives, if only as an exquisite longing. If words and language, as the poet Rilke tells us, can be made into a thing, mute as the statue of an orator, the reverse is true also. Precious things lost are transmutable. They refuse oblivion. They simply wait to be rendered into testimonies, into stories, and
0: songs. And that's what you've done in your book. Can refugees or immigrants ever really be at home in their new countries? Are they always like this?
1: <laughs> yeah, there is um there is a part of you that will always have this profound attachment to what's lost. And think I think that's defines who we are. I think it's as the old as old as the story of the fall. I mean, human history, human narrative is about lost, And so I'm not surprised that some of the oldest story is about Adam and Eve forced out of paradise. It is something that you always lose, you know, as you grow. And I think refugees especially seems to embody that idea that um, in order to survive, in order to thrive, you often have to sacrifice something as precious as homeland and a sense of uh, core identity, and that's the tragedy of human history, really.
0: You you wrestle a lot with the question or the the situation, I guess, of straddling two places, mm-hmm. two very diverse mm-hmm. places, and living really kind of two ways: mm-hmm. one foot in the past, one in the present how do you rectify that? Or or should we even try?
1: Yeah. It's It's a question that I get asked quite often, especially from people who have similar background, because I think the tendency is to either reject the present and embrace the past, or embrace the present and reject the past. But I have experienced both. And I have to say that Neither is satisfactory. (laughs) Um, What it is is that, you know, I think about what um, James Baldwin always warned us is that history is trapped in man and man is trapped in history. Is that you can never really outrun the past, you know. And so what I have come to conclusion is that the best way to deal with the past is not to pretend amnesia, but to appropriate it. And to, to render it into aesthetic expressions. In the same way as dealing with the dichotomy of one's sense of one, who one is, I think about um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who has this wonderful phrase, uh, I, I'm going to have to paraphrase him, but in, in The Crack Up, which is a wonderful essay about <laughs> being in a, a kind of insane institution uh, after his break, uh, breakdown in, in Hollywood, but he talk about the sign of first-rate intelligence is a mind that holds two opposed ideas in his head without going crazy. <laughs> and I think about that, and I think that is a kind of formula for the 21st century because we all have to migrate from one place to another. We have to change from one sense of ourselves to another. Um, is that how do we, instead of throw one of those polars away, keep both and find connective organic paths, um, together and, and bridge them that contradiction of who you are as a way to survive as a way to thrive, you know that so you don 't reject your clanship completely, nor do you go all the way to become a complete individual without any affiliations, but that you find pathway in which uh, both East and West can work for you, you know, and it requires intellectual um, inquisition and, and uh, being critical of your world.
0: We've been speaking with journalist and author Andrew Lamb, who has chosen this music to take us to break. It's a a very tried-and-true, familiar song. You've Got a Friend. Why are you choosing that for us to hear today?
1: Um, Because I was thinking of what song and... I was thinking of the particular piece I did in uh, East Eats West about uh, family gathering within my own community, but in general in Asia, in which um, the only way you can talk about how you feel is through singing a song under karaoke. And for me, uh, I remember having listened half a day to lots of relatives uh, sing their tragic. Uh, Broken Heart songs, I felt that um, You've Got a Friend was my way of telling them that I care.
0: I'm Gina Asher. Welcome back to WFIU's Profiles.
2: Production support for profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving Central and Southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: We're talking with writer Andrew Lam, whose work often is presented through the lens of the refugee experience. Lam and his family fled Vietnam in 1975 as the Viet Cong took control of South Vietnam. We've been talking about how his experiences inform his writing and how that has changed over the years that he's been examining his cultural identity. America's been home to many refugees over its history, many Fleeing religious persecution, famine, war. One common theme is the desire to blend in for a generation or two. Then second, third, fourth generations become interested in their heritage. Sometimes they travel to their ancestral homes, learn the language, restart traditions. Has that happened in your family?
1: It's only happened to a younger generation. Um, there, there are, you know, nephews and nieces of, you know, cousins and so on, who really don't have any memory of Vietnam, uh, direct ones, because they were born in the United States. And then they, the first thing they did after they graduate from uh, college is uh, to go to Vietnam. And I always ask them, "Why is it that you want to go to Vietnam?" And said, "Well, because." You know, I grew up in the United States, but my parents kept talking about this place. And I just have to see it. I just have to see what is this place that made my parents this way, you know, and had to see it for myself. And in in times, though, I think Vietnam has emerged as an economic potential in a global economic sense. Um, and so there is now not just out of nostalgia or curiosity, but that a lot of younger uh, people who you know graduated from college and decided to actually go there and work. So Vietnam is not just a place of nostalgia but it's really has become a, a kind of where you can actually uh, carve out a potential career.
0: Your memoir East Eats West plays on this theme a lot. It shows us the interdependence of Asia and the West which continued to grow even after the publication of this book. Mm-hmm. Cultural gaps remain, though, even as these economic ties bind. Mm-hmm. Explain the title of the book and then share some of it with us.
1: <laughs> well, East eats West, of course, plays on the whole theme of East meets West. And it really it's a double understanding because on the one hand, it can be easily understood as how the East is changing the West. And there's also this overwhelming culture that's coming from Uh, East Asia now, you know, be it Kung Fu and martial arts and uh, anime, you know, manga to um, uh, Asian cookings and and all this other stuff. Um, But East East West is also a personal narrative in which I as an Easterner embraced America, so it's not exactly uh, one way. It's really a a kind of two-way thoroughfare narrative of the East and West relationship um, as seen through uh, my eyes as someone who came from uh, Asia.
0: Would you like to share something from the book with us?
1: Yeah, I was thinking that I should read the introduction because it sort of gives you a sense why I wrote it. Um, So here's the intro. Whenever I hear the word chua, Vietnamese for sour, I think of tamarind, the sticky brown fruit that grew in abundance in on shading trees in my old schoolyard back in Saigon, and its intense, sour-sweet memories inevitably cause my molars to vibrate and my mouth to water. I hear sour in English, and I don't feel a thing. And yet it is in English now that I apply my trade. It is in English that I dream, and it is in English that I best express myself. Vietnam, its language, its memories, are reduced to a kind of lullaby, which is to say visceral and yet out of the quotidian of my life. Such are the strange bearings of those who lurk between East and West, between languages, between memories and desires. Where the two hemispheres overlap, however, is where I learn and relearn how to mediate opposed ideas and to bridge disparate viewpoints. A barely charted territory, it is fraught with contradictions and tensions. Its waters treacherous with the various tugs and undercurrents. Over the years, I have watched the East and West Pas-de-deux as forces of history, as well as my own fragmented biography. The differences I learned very early on. In Vietnam, you do not look your teachers in the eye unless it is to challenge them. In America, if you fail to look your teachers in the eye, they may think you shifty, that you have something to hide. Americans are fond of saying, I love you. Vietnamese don't share words of affection very easily. If at all, no, they show it. It's all in the gestures, working three jobs so your kids can go to private school, saving the best apple for your spouse while eating the bruised one yourself. Americans celebrate birthdays, Vietnamese light incense and have feasts on death anniversaries of important relatives. American children can't wait to leave home at 18. Vietnamese children stay around long into adulthood and often even after they marry. In Vietnam, individualism is equated with selfishness. America elevates it to an ideology. It demands it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America whispers rebellion of the individual against the communal. Follow your dream. Perhaps it is easier to abandon one system and swallow the new. Then perhaps life wouldn't be so difficult for those who migrate east to west. But the melting pot concept hasn't really worked. It is like a blender into which differences are forced and then regurgitated as placitude, sort of like Disney movies, which rewrite all complicated stories toward a single outcome, a thinning, predictable, happily ever after formula. The modern condition, the reality on the other hand, is messy, defined by mismatch and by an intensifying and growing complexity. Or rather, increasingly, it is cosmopolitanism that is the norm According to French writer Pascal Bruckner, cosmopolitanism speaks of being rooted in the depths of several layers of memories in numerous particularities. It does not collect a trait here or there, it becomes incarnate. It means counterbalancing the land of one's birth with additional homelands. I think of it as something like Michael Ondachi's novel, The English Patient, in which a set of complicated characters with varying and divergent histories decide to populate an abandoned villa, and in it they argue and fall in love, and in between they tell each other their stories. So here's mine. I grew up a patriotic South Vietnamese living in Vietnam during the war. I remember singing the national anthem and swearing my allegiance to the flag and promising my soul and body to protect the land and its sacred rye fields and rivers. Wide-eyed child that I was, I believed every word. But then the war ended and I, along with my family, betrayed our agrarian ethos and land-bound sentiments by fleeing overseas to lead a very different life. These days, I regularly travel between East Asia and the United States as an American journalist and writer. My relatives, once all concentrated in Saigon, are scattered across three continents, speaking three and four other languages, becoming citizens of several different countries. Once communal and bound by a common sense of geography, we are now part of a global tribe. Still, Trying to adjust to the radical shift in our lives, once a very sedentary people, we have become a highly mobile clan with multiple affiliations, we thrive and prosper. It is that transition, that adding on of identity, that effort to adjust that I mainly write about, both in fiction and non-fiction. I think of that tongue-tied refugee child at the blackboard in seventh grade drawing pictures of helicopters and rice paddies, trying to tell his story to his new American classmates, sharing what he remembered, what he had lost. He knew it even before he could fully articulate it. Between East and West lay a terrain that needed to be charted by stories, fused by his new eyes and imagination. And he needed to tell those stories if he ever hoped to be whole again. Decades later, I'm happy to report that, dancing at the far end of that continuum, he still doggedly added.
0: Your essays are so powerful and they pull so much of you into them, but you also have been a journalist for many years. That's a wholly different kind of writing. You've won awards for your reporting. You're also a co-founder of New America Media, which is online at newamericamedia.org. What is its mission and how do you fit into that?
1: Yeah, I wear different hats at different times. Again, you know, wearing opposed ideas of yourself. Um, So I do reporting and I also do news analysis. And um, I chase after the news of the day. And as an editor for New American Media, I have a staff of writers who basically are asked to do stories that are relevant to uh, ethnic communities around the country. Uh, For instance, there's a killing in San Francisco, and the major newspaper there, the San Francisco Chronicle – looked at the killer's uh, immigration status, which to me seems to miss the point um, because no one uh, searched for the the motivation of why he did it. So we look at uh, how gambling addiction is a major issue within the Asian community and that sometimes plays itself out through violent means. So in a way, New American media is a kind of counterbalance to what mainstream media often write about ethnic communities, um, because within the ethnic communities, there's a different perspective on how we would cover the same story. And so it's an association of over 2000 ethnic media outlets in the country. And um, on the one hand, we promote the kind of writing they have and sort of aggregate the content on New American media. And on the other, we also syndicate the stories that we write for them uh, to use. And it's nonprofit. It's .org. So um, we're funded by foundations as a way to sort of equal the playing field in a sense of in a democracy, you expect to have all voices shared uh, rather than, um, you know, monolithic New York Times telling the story. Um, We counterbalance that with the voices from the communities.
0: When was this formed? How long has it been
2: around?
1: Well, the original company. is actually called Pacific News Service. And it was found, uh, founded by uh, two professors from Berkeley, uh, Franz Sherman and uh, Orville Schell. And Orville Schell is quite famous. He's written quite a lot of books. And um, now I think he's head of uh, Asia Society. But um, he was a professor at Berkeley. And they were both very interested in stories from um, the Indo-Chinese um, situation in during the war, you know, the war in Vietnam. So it was a, a wire service in the 70s that basically, again, is an alternative media for, for the press to use um, to supplement uh, coverage. But after the war, it sort of looked inward and de- dealt with issues of immigration, racial violence, um, um, you know, inequities and so on. And over time, it sort of got interested in, the other form of alternative media which is media that's created by ethnic communities and um so back in the 90s we sort of did a sort of search for those papers and radio com- organizations and asked them what is what do they want to to do as a uh, if they were to get together And a lot of them say, you know, uh, we kind of function in a silo, really. And that uh, a lot of time we break the news, but we don't get recognition. And the major newspapers that have someone who access our work uh, steal those ideas and then get the awards. Uh, It's quite unfair. You know, we don't get to interview uh, major figures because we're too small and not considered legitimate. And so we thought, well, why don't we put them together as a an association so that together they, they speak volume. And we found that, you know, in fact, uh, in California, ethnic media, you know, radio, print, and TV, together access almost 16 million people, um, be it um, secondary source or first source of information.
0: How does an organization like that flounder or thrive given the situation in the journalism industry now?
1: Yeah, well, again, it's nonprofit, so it doesn't depend on uh, commercial uh, money. It, um, but I think foundations are beginning to recognize how um, they cannot access a lot of um, people that they their mission supposed to be accessing uh, simply by accessing mainstream media. For instance, if you have a fire or let's say, um, the, God forbid, um, uh, an epidemic that spreads out in California and beyond – and you only have uh, hygiene messages in English and advertised through the Chronicle, um, you will miss out maybe a third or fourth of the Bay Area population, if not more. You know, one out of four is an immigrant in uh, California, and um, 33% speak another language other than English. And so how do you access if you tell them that if you don't do this, the um, the epidemic will, will spread, Right. So if you're going to go through the mainstream media, you're not going to be able to get your message out. And in the same way as voting uh, issue, all that, you need to get to where the communities are and the, the media that they're using. And I think slowly but surely they're, they're recognizing the the need to go through organizations like New American Media to get their message out and to be able to uh, get to everyone who lives in America.
0: Because they're in the audience too. Yeah. Your own work that's been posted on New America Media has recently covered topics from human trafficking Mm -hmm. to a trend in Thailand of dining on elephant sashimi to the plight of refugees from U.S.-led wars in their home countries. In all these stories and even in a piece about parking fines Hmm. in San Francisco – you bring the reader back to that plight of the disenfranchised or the effects on local culture of some mm-hmm. of these things. Could someone who is not an immigrant write about these topics in the same way?
1: <laughs> I I don't know. I, I'm not that person, so I'm not sure how they would uh, feel. But I do know what it's like to be disenfranchised. I do know what it's like not to have a voice. I do know what it's like to be at the receiving end of unfair practices. Um so when I write these things, even if it's not about anything close to my own experience, I, I think I have a natural empathy of uh of people who who are being uh, cheated or being uh treated uh badly. The story that you talk about um, the parking tickets in San Francisco. I mean, it's exorbitant, but it doesn't really hit rich people. People who live in wealthy neighborhood don't get ticketed as much as people who live in poor ones. People who live in poor neighborhood don't even have residential parking; uh, they have to move their car every two hours, which is really bizarre to me. And then um, people who work and live in poor neighborhood who come to rich neighborhood to park their car. Well, you know, they get tickets like $75 for um, um, over – staying all too long on a meter um, that expire. And, you know, I interviewed a woman who was a uh, a maid in in the neighborhood where I live, which is a posh neighborhood, I will admit. And she say four tickets will just rob her of, uh, you know, her income for two weeks.
0: When I read that piece, I had read several others before yeah. that, including the two I mentioned. And I thought, oh, well, this is different. But as I read into it, I saw where you were going. I saw that you were looking at those people. It wasn't just the, oh, it's really awful the way they're giving us tickets yeah. kind of story. Uh, so I was impressed by that, that you did bring it back to the people it hits hardest. Yeah.
1: And uh, I got in trouble for mentioning that there was a, a 19-year-old that was killed um, because he didn't have – a. Transfer ticket. Uh, and he was a, a, a someone who had fled from, um, I guess, Washington State, you know. And so, as he was being asked uh, out of paranoia, he fled with his gun. And we don't really know what exactly happened there, but therefore, there was some gun shot exchange. And it's not even my perspective, but it's the people in that neighborhood's perspective is that, you know, this kid was killed because he didn't have $2 for the transfer. You know, and that's how poor people feel about this, uh, the way things can get worse within a, a place like San Francisco.
0: Describe for the listeners the story about the elephant sashimi. <laughs>
1: Uh, we because, talk about elephant quite a bit. <laughs> well, the reason
0: I bring that up is because it really demonstrates the the cultural divide and, uh-huh. and things that have happened in recent years. It, sure. it describes, and this is not a pun, the East Eats West idea. Yeah. Well,
1: I think wh- why I wrote that story has to do with the fact that um, it's, it's steeped in irony. Uh, if you go to Thailand, and this is where it happened, the elephant – is the most sacred symbol. The way you say the bald eagle is here. Imagine someone barbecue a bald eagle. Um, it's just as boring, uh, boring to a lot of Thai people as it is um, to American to see a, a bald uh, eagle shot and kill for feathers, for instance. In Thailand, uh, despite the fact the elephant being the sacred animal, th- the commercialism and the wealth of that region, especially uh, from China, is overwhelming to the point where the demand sort of creates this uh, wild taste, as the Chinese would call it, even though when it involves um, you know killing um, sacred animals or uh, endangered species. And in fact, because they are endangered species, their demand is even higher. Because if I were a multi-millionaire in China, I feel necessarily, uh, not me personally, but I'm just saying as an example, we feel like to show off, then you can buy the last tiger to eat.
0: Right? last of the species
1: yeah the last of the species so it gives away your your position of status and all that is this crazy materialism that is sort of part of the the new mindset of asia where you have to show off because really who wants to eat uh, elephant meat it probably doesn't taste any good but it's it's a situation in which you can show off and it's unfortunate that wealth uh, trumps all values
0: your first short story collection Birds of Paradise is due out next year, and you're also working on a novel, so you're really using many different tools to examine your thinking and your your experience. Um, Have you written fiction before?
1: Actually, when I was in a creative writing program at San Francisco State 20 years ago, that's what my aim was. I didn't really want to be a journalist. And the writer, Richard Rodriguez, who's a great essayist and my mentor, uh, basically convinced me to sort of get out of that fictional mode and write uh, uh, literary uh, essays.
0: So what what has prompted this return
1: then? It's always been the back burner. And so once in a while, I've... I would publish a short story. And over the years, it's just become a collection.
0: So what can we expect when we read it?
1: Uh, Well, Birds of Paradise is really um, a study of Vietnamese characters in California, but particularly in the Bay Area. Oh, Um,
0: a little autobiographical maybe.
1: Not necessary. (laughs) And these are people who were defined by a trauma, the war, and its aftermath. But how they deal with it vary Completely from one uh, narrative to another, and that's how it is with people in general. Some people can't let go of the past at all, and some people manage to let go and and make something new of themselves. And a lot of people are caught in between. So, birds of paradise come from the the title of the story. Come from this one short story in it, in which a man watches this photo um, that of uh, his friend who committed self-immolation in Washington D.C. And he had seen self immolations in Vietnam before and he's very anti communist, but then he struggled with the meaning of his friend's protest in DC. And so he looked at the flame and it reminded him of the flower, the bird of paradise, which is brilliant orange and red and has a kind of flame like flickering uh, you know, shape. And so, and so I thought, wow, well, you know, in some way it, it, it's appropriate to call the whole collection Birds of Paradise because it deals with really um, a spiritual and love and, and spiritual drama of people who have to make sense of their new place in the new world.
0: Have you ever considered an autobiography? Or do you feel like a lot of your work is already woven <laughs> your life into? I feel
1: it? that I will write one, um, especially the the Vietnamese childhood among uh, soldiers and warfare and, um, you know, all this magical memory of Vietnam during the Vietnam War um, haven't really been written, you know, for me. So but I think I feel like I probably can't get it to it until my 50s simply <laughs> because you need that much space um, That because it was a circuit moment of my, my life, you know, growing up in a war but have amazing, tragic and beautiful memory. That I think the only way I can do is when I, I get to a certain uh, level of maturity. And then there's this novel that I'm doing next. So after that, oh, for sure, I'm going to have to tackle my Vietnamese childhood.
0: What about that novel? Is that the current work in progress? Yeah. Though?
1: Yeah, it's hard to talk about something in progress, but um, it's going to deal with, again, spiritual drama, a, a, uh, an effort to find one's place uh, in both countries, and and also a kind of reconciliation with war and memory.
0: Where do you consider home?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the quickest answer would be a lovely San Francisco where I grew up. <laughs> yes, but you know what I'm aiming at. <laughs> yes, I do. I think of home in different ways. Um, a house is where you know where your address is, but home is a place where you a sense of direction i guess for me as long as you are in communion with your soul as long as you know where you want to go in this world, you will be at home in the world um and for me that is always true when I set out on a path of um you know passion of creative. Uh, work. I never feel fearful because I feel housed and protected because of my passion. It's always when you fall out of love with your what you do is when you sort
0: of become homeless. I think that's the perfect ending to a lovely conversation. We've been speaking with journalist and author Andrew Lamb, founder of New America Media, whose next book, Birds of Paradise, is due next year. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. I'm Gina Asher for Profiles, Thanks for listening.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.